Take your Bibles and go with me to the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 13. As we begin today, let's look together to the Lord in a word of prayer and ask His blessing on His Word, and then we're going to look into the Word. Father, we come before You today. We thank You for these written words that You have given to us that have been long preserved. Thank You, Lord, that as it tells us in the book of Hebrews, the Word of God is living, it is active, sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit of the joints and marrow, discerner of the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. Living Word, we pray that You would meet us in the written Word today, that You would teach us, You would instruct us. Lord, as we as a church come together around these men that You have called in our midst, We pray your blessing upon them, their families. We pray, Lord, that not only would you put a hedge of protection around this building, this place, these people, but these men and their families, Lord, we know that to be in responsibility and leadership is to have a target on one's back. Pray for them, their children, their families. Keep us, Lord, each of us from the evil one. Thank you, Lord, for this day, for each one that you have brought into this building at this time, for this moment. Lord, teach us in Jesus' name. Amen. I want you to look with me in the book of Hebrews this morning. In the book of Hebrews, we have various things. Obviously, it's one of the lengthy epistles of the New Testament. Um, Most people suppose or believe it was written by the Apostle Paul, although Paul does not um, actually sign the letter. Um, There is some debate on who actually wrote the letter. Um, The book of Hebrews, of course, was written to Hebrews, and it was written to encourage them in, in their newfound faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, they have left a system of Judaism. Many of them were Pharisees. They have come and embraced Jesus as their Lord and as their Messiah. And he talks about the sacrifice of Christ, all the different things in the book of Hebrews. And then we get to the end of it. After walking through the Old Testament and being reminded of all those great heroes of the faith, men of faith, men and women of faith in Hebrews 11, and then in chapter 12, he tells us to look unto Jesus, the author, the completer of our faith, and we get to chapter 13, and he's bringing the letter to a close, much like Paul does in other epistles. He gets very practical. He says, let brotherly love continue. And then he talks about some aspects of brotherly love. And there are two verses in this chapter that I want to direct our thinking to today. Dealing with the church, with leaders and congregants, all the saints, 
And as I look at these two verses this morning, I want us to think about something here. In these two verses, I will have you notice with me that we really get in these two verses very succinct statements about the church, its responsibilities, leaders and their responsibilities, the blessings of being in the church, blessings of being a leader. And in these two verses, in very succinct statements, we really have a prescription for a healthy church. A prescription for a healthy church. Following these two verses will fix any problem in any church. It's that basic. Any problem in any church could be fixed if people would turn to these two verses and say, since this is God's will, we will obey it and we will follow it. It'll fix any problem in any church. It will also prevent many problems in the church. You know, we talk a lot today about preventative health care. You don't want to start taking care of your health when you lose your health, right? You want to take care of your health while you're healthy. You want to prevent problems. Preventative health care. And I would suggest to you that in the very same way, the church will take these two verses, will apply them, will use them, will follow them, it will prevent problems. I want you to notice what he says in these two verses, verses 7 and verse 17. Remember, he begins the chapter by saying, let brotherly love continue. He then says, Show hospitality. He says, remember those who are in prison. Hold marriage honorably. You know, and he he talks about how when we don't, God brings judgment. Don't love money. And then he says this. Remember your leaders. What leaders is he talking about? He's not talking about your civil leaders, because he defines who these leaders are, although he does not call them elders. He says, remember your leaders. These leaders are the ones who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, And today, and forever. Verse 17. Obey these leaders, these ones who have spoken to you the word of God. Obey them and submit to them. Why? Why should I do that? For for they are keeping watch over your souls. And they are doing so as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning for that is no advantage to you. 
in these two verses, we have very succinct statements about the responsibilities of leaders in the church and congregants with the saints. We're going to look at those verses and think about those statements and the things that he tells us to do. But as we do so this morning, I want us to remember and be reminded, you know, as we think about church government, and we've thought of this a lot this summer, we did some studying on it, we talked about elders, we talked about mission and purpose, all those different things. One of the things I want you to realize and remember, there has always been a lot of difference of opinion over church government structure. I mean, go back to the early church and trace church history all the way today. There are many different denominations. There are many different ways that things have been done. All of them, to one degree or another, have sought to build their pattern based on New Testament teaching. But there's always been a lot of difference of opinion. Uh, when you think about main types of church government structures... Among Protestant churches, there are essentially three. One is called the Episcopal system. Uh, Anglicanism, the Episcopal system, is basically having a bishop. And from that, a system of governance. You have a Presbyterial system, which uses the word elder. And you have a congregational model. If you think of all the churches in America, all the churches in the world today that are basically what we would think of as evangelical, they're going to find themselves in one of these three systems or any combination of them. Many churches have a various combination, taking things and putting together various aspects. So many congregational churches have elders, such as we, such as us. Let's think about a history lesson. You know, I talk about difference of opinion. Every Sunday we do the catechism. We're, we're using the Westminster catechism, um, the shorter catechism. There's a Westminster larger catechism. We use the shorter catechism. The Westminster catechism was drawn up in the 1600s by the Westminster Assembly. And so when you think about and, and also in your bulletin, I, I, there's always a statement from, or a few statements from, the Westminster Confession of Faith. It's done in the 1600s. It was drawn up at the Westminster Assembly in the 1600s by 141 different pastors. They were called together into a convention that met at Westminster Abbey. And there at Westminster Abbey for five years, they worked, that looks like an S, for five years they worked together in 1100 sessions. 1,100 sessions. They would start the morning in plenary sessions where they would study together. In the afternoon, they would break up into study groups. In the evening, they would come together and worship and pray. They would call special fast days when they would gather at the Westminster Assembly, as the assembly, these 141 pastors, and they would fast, praying that God would bless their work. They drew up the Confession of Faith, they drew up the catechism. They drew up a directory for public worship. And they also drew up a document on church government called the Westminster Standards. 
Now, in history, this happened in the 1600s during a time when Charles I had been deposed from the British throne and the Puritan Parliament had stepped into power. And at that time, there was what was called the English Civil War. There was the Cavaliers and the Roundheads, and they're going at each other. The Puritan Parliament called this assembly to deal with these issues. Won't go into everything with that. There's a lot of beautiful things that you can study. It was during this period of time that uh, John Bunyan was a pagan. He served in the army. God graciously spared his life twice when he thought he could have lost it. Well, once, he was called to go do sentry duty. One of his friends said, I'll go in your place. I can't sleep tonight. And that guard was shot through the head um, by someone on the opposing side. Bunyan was not a Christian. It was later he became a Christian. He wrote Pilgrim's Progress from prison. Um, because of after all of these things, when the king comes back to power, he throws the Puritans out of power, and they write what's called the Act of Conformity, which says if you are an English citizen, you will join the Anglican Church. And John Bunyan said, no, I won't, and I won't take your license either. And he goes to prison for preaching without a license. That's what he went to prison for for preaching without a license. And while he was in prison, all he would have had to do to the judge was say, I will quit preaching, and the judge would have let him walk at any time. But rather than doing that, his conscience was bound to the word of God. Anyway, these 1,100 sessions, five years, 141 men. You know what was the most divisive thing they dealt with? It wasn't the Trinity. It wasn't the atonement. It wasn't even election and the sovereignty of God. You know what it was? Church government. You know why? About a third of these men's were Congregationalists. About a third of these men's were Scottish Presbyterians, and you know how the Scottish are. They argue with everybody. <laughs> Sorry if you're Scottish, but it's true, right? Fight at the drop of a hat. So you have Scottish Presbyterians congregationalists and Anglicans. And they're trying to say, what does the Bible say about church government? There's always been differences of opinion. When you think about these things, though, the thing that I want us to think about, as I've talked about before, the main point of church government, this is the main point. The main point about how a church governs itself Church government is not about how any man can get his way in the church. It is a system of checks and balances to help ensure that in a fallen world where every man is a sinner, Christ gets his way in his church. That's what it's all about. We are on a path. We are on a journey. We are growing together as a congregation. We are learning. We are growing. The governing 
principle behind all these things is this. I talked about it before. I don't care what system you have. When men walk in pride, it fails. When men walk in humility, it works. Why? Because God resists the proud. But he gives grace to the humble. Now, as we think about these things, there are three basics that I would draw our attention to about church polity. When you see the word polity, we're talking about rule. It's a Greek word, talking about rule, polity. Three basic things that I would say we are building our foundation upon. Number one, Congregations are to be self-governing. They are to be autonomous. Now, that does not mean that we are autonomous in the sense that we can do whatever we want. I guess in one sense we can, but God won't bless it. We do not have the capability to just do whatever we want on any given thing. Our question, the question we need to ask is this, what does God want us to do? What does the Bible teach? But then as we determine that under Christ, what his word says, we are free as a congregation to make our own choice. We are self-governing. We are autonomous. Now, we are a part of the universal body. That is very important. We are a part of the universal body. We cooperate with other churches in this valley, other churches in the region, other churches in the country, and other churches in the world. And we gladly celebrate that. We are a part of the body of Christ, but we are autonomous. We are self-governing. Here's another thing I want you to think about. Congregants have the authority of Christ vested in them. We are a congregational church. That means that the final authority on anything resides in the membership of this church. Not in the eldership. That is demonstrated in the New Testament in the issue of church discipline. In Matthew 18, Jesus said, if your brother wrongs you, what are you supposed to do? Go to the coffee shop and talk about him. Right? Amen. Is that what it says? No, it says what? Go and solve that issue. You and him. If you can, if there's still problems, you take two or three with you. If you can't get to the bottom of it then, what do you do? Tell the elders. Is that what he says? You tell who? The church. Not the elders. The church. It's brought to the church. So Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, when you are gathered in the name of Christ and the Spirit is with you, then you, as a congregation, deliver such a one, the sinning one in 1 Corinthians 5, to Satan 
for the destruction of the body in church discipline. So who does that? Not just the elders, the who? The congregation. So it is the congregation who has final authority. However, having said that, the New Testament also teaches that congregations have elders who lead them. Congregations have elders who lead them. So those are the kind of three basic points we would make about church polity issues in the New Testament. When you think about Emmanuel Bible Church then, I want you to understand that Emmanuel Bible Church is a congregationally governed church. That means if the church was going to call a new pastor, and I vacated the pulpit, I died, the Lord took me home, or I moved away, I don't plan to, I have no goal to do that, my goal is to die in the pulpit. Not today, but to die in the pulpit. But I want, my goal, when, when, when we went into the ministry, and Amy, I, Amy and I prayed, Lord, when you give, take us to a ministry, when you take us to a church, would you please just allow us to spend our life there? We want to invest our life in a church. Um, so, you know, no plan to go anywhere, but if I did, it's not the elders who hire a replacement. You know, they may direct you, they may lead you. It's the congregation who does. It's a congregationally governed church, but it is an elder-led church. Important you notice that. Um, and so then we would also say that at Emmanuel Bible Church, there was elder oversight, but staff execution. They're, again, not standing you up against the wall and executing you in a firing squad, but executed, carried out. So elder oversight, staff executed. That's kind of how we are doing things, and that's what we believe is the New Testament pattern. There are two verses here that summarize these things. I want to take the next minutes and, minutes and look at the text. In these two verses, there are responsibilities of the church, and there are responsibilities of the leaders of the church. You noticed them. If you will notice with me, when he talked to the leaders, he says some basic things to the leaders. He says, leaders lead. Leaders lead. Leadership isn't just about a position. Leadership isn't just about, you know, sitting in a chair. Leadership is about lead. You lead. Leaders in the church speak the word of God. As the main way they lead is by speaking the word of God. And they set an example. They set an example to the church. If you really think about leaders in the church, you think about the eldership, these are the three main responsibilities. Oversight, leadership, the speaking of the word of God, and the setting of an example. Those are the three basic things. There again, this is just summary statements of what these men do. And they do so. What are they doing? They're watching out for souls. They're watching out for souls. And they are doing that as what? Those who will one day render a account. The longer I live, the longer I've been in ministry, the more sobering that reality is. An account. Saints remember. Saints obey. Saints submit. 
And they do so in an environment that creates joy, not groaning. Remember that in the text? Specifically thinking about trying to create an environment of joy, not groaning, because that is not beneficial to anybody, as the text says. Let's think about these things for just a minute. Okay, let's work through. Notice with me verse 7. Remember your leaders. Remember your leaders. Notice the word leader there. He doesn't say remember your elders. This word leader is the Greek word hegeomai, from which we get the English word today, hegemony. Have you ever heard of that word? How many of you have been keeping up with all the debates going on in our country in education about CRT and intersectionality? Do you know what CRT is and intersectionality? And all those different things going on. In the CRT movement, critical race theory, there's this thing about hegemony and structures of power. And that since whites have been in these structures of power, they are repressing and holding down those minority races. That's what CRT is all about. This isn't a message on CRT, so we'll move on. But they use the word hegemony. So when you hear the word on the news, hegemony, it's talking about a power structure. That word is most often com uh, uh, sure, translated in the New Testament, governor. A governor. So most of the times it doesn't say in the text, remember your leader, it says remember your governor. You know what a governor is in a vehicle. A governor, a leader. This is an important word. He's talking about an office. He's talking about authority that is vested in an office and a person fills that office. I don't want to take the time to do it, but I want you to draw your attention to the back of the bulletin. On the back of the bulletin, I put a lengthy quote from a guy named Jonathan Lehman at Nine Marks Ministries. Excellent article on the selection of elders, and he talks about this very issue of office, eldership, selection, and authority. And I want you to read that because it's excellent material that he talks about and how authority by God is vested in an office. And then God calls a man to fill the office. And the church recognizes that and places him in that office. The power, the authority is not in the man, it is in who? in God, and it is in the office. It is the office. Our president, President Biden, whatever you think of the man, his office, we respect his office, correct? We submit and we obey, not because of who he is, but because of what? The office. We have the office here he's talking about, the leadership. An office in which God places someone and we are then called to follow. Second thing, they lead. They're in an office. They have a position that God calls them to oversight. 
what we were talking about here. But what do they do? What does he say? They speak. What do they speak? The word of God. Now, that's interesting. Just like he didn't say in this verse, remember the elders. He says, remember the leaders. Remember the office. He then says, what do they do? They preach the word of God. But is that what he said? They preach. What do they do? They speak. Do elders preach? Do pastors preach? Yes, they do. That's the Greek word karuks, proclamation. I'm doing it right now. It's an important work of ministry. 2 Timothy 4, preach the word. Be instant, in season, out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering. For there will be a time when men will not endure sound teaching. Preach the word. That's not what he's pointing to here. He says, speak the word. Very different word. The word speak there is just the word that is used in the New Testament to speak of ordinary conversation. It's just ordinary conversation. What he is saying is the men who lead the church, their ordinary speech is God's word. It's not just teaching here. It's teaching all day. Every day, when we interact with the people of God. So what he is saying here is not every man who is a leader in the church is called to pulpit ministry. But every man who is called by God to lead his church teaches by speaking. By his ordinary conversation being filled to overflowing with God's word. Is a teaching ministry. He speaks the word. He sets an example. That's the next one. He says they set an example. He notice what it says in this verse. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. The word imitate there is a Greek word. Mimikai, which just means to mimic. Have you ever had somebody that just mimics you? Maybe some of you kids, your brother or sister, when they want to really get your goat, they mimic you. They just are following you. They're imitating you. And what he's saying is these are men who are setting a pattern for the church that is an incarnational life that people can look to and say, that's the way you do it. That's the way you do it. And they imitate it. They mimic The men that you ordain today are men who have set an example to me. I've been around them for most of them for a long time. I've watched them. They've been an example to me. I remember a time some years ago getting a call and baby Joshua was being life-flighted to Idaho Falls. 
and going down there and meeting Jonathan and Nicole and Rosellen into the wee hours of the night, sitting up with them and watching how Jonathan and Nicole dealt with that event that was going on in their life and seeing that they weren't falling apart, they weren't like going ape and going crazy. They were speaking the Word of God in trust. That's an example. I remember going to a hospital, sitting in the waiting room with my wife Amy, after hearing the call that one of the elders of the church at the time, John Moore, had had a heart attack. And Dave and Kathy come in. Being with Jan. Walking through that event and watching their faith. They didn't fall apart. They set an example. I watched Keith and Barb this spring. I watched Keith as he had to go through the same thing with his mom. Other difficulties. And I could talk about each one of the guys. I could talk about stories how over the years, as I have sat in my chair, as I have lived my life, as I have watched these men, I have said in my heart, what I preach is true. What I preach is real. What I preach works. They set an example. They do so as those who watch out for souls and those who give an account. Now notice with me the saints. The saints remember, they obey, they submit, and they want to do so that there's an environment of joy. They remember, it says, remember those who lead you. The way you remember them is by considering the outcome of their faith and imitating them. Remember. Now, I would suggest to you that we most often forget things that we take for granted, things that are ordinary, things that have just always been there. And so we remind us, remember them, remember them. Remember your leaders. You know, there's a couple of things that you should remember about these men that are going to be up here that we're going to pray over in just a few minutes. One of the things I want you to remember is they are an example to you, but they're just men like you, like me. Will they stumble? Will, will they fall? They will. Hang around me long enough, you will see me fall. When I do, I hope by God's grace to ask your forgiveness and to go to the Lord. Right? Not a man is perfect. I want you to remember these men that are in leadership of this church are not perfect men. So, covet with me, remember this. Pray for them. Pray for them. Remember to pray for them. Put them on your list and keep them in the forefront of your thinking. Pray that God will direct them, that God will lead us as we seek to lead the church. He says, obey and submit. Oh, those dirty words. 
Right? All you kids are saying, oh, that's the same thing I got to do to mom and dad. I got to obey and submit everybody. You know what? Nothing in society works. Nothing. If there is not submission and obedience. You cannot have a civilization in a society where there's anarchy. If everybody just decided we're not going to stop at stoplights, they can't stop us all. But you know what? We're all going to be wrecking. Because they gave us stoplights for a purpose. And so what do we as a society do? We say, I am going to willingly submit. I'm going to obey that. Obey and submit. Why? So there's an environment of joy, not groaning. So there is an environment of joy and not groaning. And you understand that, and I won't go any further. You know what that's like in your home. Ladies, you are the grease and the wheel bearing of your husband's life. Right? You are. You are the spirit of your home. And you ladies can create an environment in your home where everything is misery. You can. You can also create an environment in your home where it's joy. And the choice is yours by the spirit that you bring to it. This church will never be perfect. Your leaders will never be perfect. Your leaders will make many mistakes. The goal of the congregation in this regard is to create an environment of joy. Not groaning. These men do so as those who watch out for souls and those who will give an account. Notice these two things. Number one, they watch out for souls. The word watch there is a word that speaks of sleeplessness. Literally, the Greek word speaks of sleeplessness. When I think of that word, I think of various things. I may think of a mother who is anxiously caring for a sick child. She stays up all night. She is sleepless. Why is she sleepless? Because of anxiety for the child. She is watching for her child's life. Think of a soldier on guard duty. Maybe I think of a herdsman who's taking care of cattle or sheep at night and is sleepless watching. These are men who watch for souls. They watch for souls. Eternity. As those who give an account. I considered several things on this. In Ezekiel 3, verse 18, it talks about the watchman on the wall. He says, if I say to the wicked person, you will surely die. And you are a watchman on the wall, and you do not warn him. You don't speak out to warn him about the wicked way in order to save his life. That wicked person will die for his iniquity. Yet I will hold you responsible. If you warn a wicked person and he does not turn from the wickedness or his wicked way, he will die for his iniquity, but you saved your life. You will give an account. 
In Acts 20, Paul is talking to the Ephesian elders. He says, I know that none of you will ever see my face again. Everyone I went, uh, everyone I went about preaching the kingdom to. Therefore, I testify to you this day, I am innocent of everyone's blood. Why does he say that? Because I did not shrink back from declaring to you the whole plan of God. Now, these men, myself included, Matt, we will give an account to the Lord for this church. We will not give an account for results, and we will not give an account for your response. We will give an account for this. In the book of Jeremiah, it says this, Let him who has my word speak my word faithfully. That is the account. Render an account. Congregation, as we pray together today, this is the commitment we ask of you. We put it in that little brochure we gave to you. Submitting ourselves to the Lord and these men. We will love them. Pray for them. We will uphold them and require of them faithfulness. In the discharge of their office, and ministry. These men are committing to you that they have professed the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior, that they believe that the Bible is the actual Word of God. It is inerrant and infallible. It is the only source of authority for the church. That is why we speak the Word of God. They are committing that they will defend and protect the foundational tenets of the Christian faith. They will uphold the beliefs and practices of this church. And at any time those beliefs change, that they will affirm to the elders that that change has happened. So it can be discussed and worked through and come to a resolution. They commit to submit to the government and discipline of Christ, to submit to their fellow elders in the Lord, to be faithful and diligent in executing the duties of the office and in seeking to be an example to the flock. That's their commitment to you. What are they doing? They have three roles. Oversight of the church. They lead. They speak the word of God to you. And they set an example to you. That is their work. He says, remember those who lead you. And then he says, Jesus Christ is the same. Yesterday, today, forever. The church of Jesus Christ will always have a turnover in earthly leadership. But never will Jesus Christ get off the throne and give the rule of the church, the headship of the church, to any other being. It is his. And he is the same yesterday, today, forever. No man 
will hold this office for eternity. That is Christ. Remember him. Although everything changes, he will know. I spent some time remembering this week. Just sitting down and remembering. It says to remember. When the Lord brought Amy and I here in 96, the church at the time was very small. There were eight members. There were three men who were serving as a board. None of them were in uh, like a eldership or a deacon. They just were leading the church. They were all older men, uh, two of them in very poor health. Amy and I began to pray that God would bring some men. That was our prayer, that God would bring men to lead the church. God brought three. Carl Canning was on the board for a while as an elder. Dick Shady. God brought Dick Shady to the church, and Dick then ended up moving away. And then I spent a lot of time, I spoke about him already, was thinking about Dave's dad, John. who was a rock in this church during some founding times. A man that I relied on heavily as a young man in ministry. God took him home early. I preached on this text the Sunday after his death, remembering, thinking of John. And what a blessing. When those three men left the eldership, the church just transitioned into a deacon model for a time, and we stayed with that for a time, waiting and praying that God would get us to this point today of ordaining again elders, men who recognized the role, who understood not only the qualifications, but the method and what to do, And today is another answer to prayer for me. I know John is proud. We love him dearly. Many of you don't know John. Great blessing to this church. And so... Sorry, I'm kind of losing it on the inside, so we're just going to go to prayer. We're going to end it with that. I had a conclusion in my sermon written up, but I ain't going to get to it because that kind of blew my mind. To remember again, a dear friend who was a tremendous example to me as a young man going into ministry here at the church.
final word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for this morning, Lord. We thank you for the joy. The joy of protecting and taking care of this church. Lord, you have brought this church through so many things over so many years. And yet, Lord, we are all here together as a, hand, as a part of your handiwork. We are so grateful, Lord, that not only we get to be part of the universal church, but we get to be part of the local body. And Lord, as the local body, it has many members. And Lord, you have called us all to be involved in this church. To all take a part. And Lord, we do it with joy in our hearts as we serve one another and we serve this community. Lord, we thank you. Use us, we pray, as we go into our mission field to share the light within the darkness. In Jesus' name.